Welcome to Into Theology. Ian Clary is joining me again for our third episode in a row. And I think we're going to go on oh, a, record, like a record or something. Yeah, we're going to we're going to get past 100 nonstop. <laughs> yeah, because we need to have a lot of episodes in order to finish the Summa of Thomas yeah. Aquinas. Today, well, we're... not the Summa, but the Summa, the Summa of the Summa, <laughs> yeah, which is already still pretty big. Uh, we're looking today at questions seven and eight on the infinity of God and the existence of God in things, both of which are almost are kind of the same topic. It's how God is sort of everywhere has no borders, that kind of thing. And I read it fast once and I read it kind of slow again today. And I realized it's really a brilliant couple of chapters. And I think chapter eight is uh, was really like helpful to me to kind of open my eyes to how we can talk about God somehow being in all things without yeah. becoming um, a pantheist, which is the which is an error of saying that God is, you know, somehow substantially in all things. Where Aquinas will push back against that. He's in all things as as like a cause, is an effect, or as an operator is in the the thing operated. Or as a yeah, basically that. We'll get to it, I'm sure. Um Yeah, he really does a good job in a sense, like kind of like contrasting, you know, the biblical view of God or the Christian view of God against pantheism and against like a kind of like deism, deistic kind of God too. Um it, it strikes the right balance. What I found too in his question seven, the way he opens, he's 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 building a case. Um, so if you didn't read questions one through six, this is a tough question because yeah, I was gonna say it, it builds a lot on what's already been said. I didn't realize, but when he talks about form and matter and uh, um, finitude and relative infinity and absolute infinity, you really need to know what's going on. So he distinguishes form from matter. Matter um, has, in a sense. When matter is potentially something, there's the infinitude of possibilities of what it could be, you know, relatively infinite. But then when form attaches to it, it's it's really just that one thing that's been perfected, completed. Yeah. Or form, when it is attached to matter, it's, you know, more or less contracted to it. And by itself, it's relatively infinite. It's But it's not yet, because you'll conclude that it doesn't actually, even a form, like, so, for example, he gives the possibility that angels are just forms. If they are, they still don't have existence and essence in themselves. Yeah. They are still themselves not subsistent being. And he has, and I'll read this, and then you can kind of bounce off to say whatever you want. So think about something whatever smart. Whatever I want. Whatever I want. No, Woo! only smart things. Think of something really smart smart to say. On page 98, near the bottom, reply to objection one on the second article. He has this cool sentence. Um, uh, it begins with because, but I'm going to skip that. And he says, subsisting being is not a creature. And his point is, there's only one subsistent being. There's only one being that has existence. I guess in and of themselves, even the wrong word. He just is his existence. And that has to be God. <laughs> Everything yeah. else, even if you say there's some eternal form, like an angel or like truth or whatever it is, um, unless it's God, it's still it still owes its existence, its essay to God. It's still a yeah. composition of essence and existence. And as I think about it, there's no more. I don't think I can think of a more rudimentary way to get at anything. So essence and existence, the most basic. And even then that defines it as a as a creature and for for thomas i mean this 
he doesn't use this terminology, but the distinction between God and creation, creator and creature, is so, it almost seems like it's a driving, it's the driving emphasis of his doctrine of God. Yeah. We are simply not like God, and we can only know him by symbols and analogies, images, by way of negation. Um, although I saw heard on Facebook say that, like, there's some positive thing you can say. I couldn't understand what he was talking about, to be honest. Yeah, I, I couldn't could. understand it. <laughs> I was like, maybe this makes sense. <laughs> Basically, like, Ryan Hurd will put up a quote or, or some sort of thought yeah. about what he's reading in Thomas. And then, like, my consistent, like, replies to it are like, what the frig are you talking about? <laughs> and it's not like a baffle. Like, I'm not like, what? Get off your high horse. I'm like, no, I want to know what you're talking about. Please. Yeah, I'm curious, <laughs> too. Like, I was like, I don't follow what you're saying, but it. Yeah. Sounds like it's probably true and smart, like you usually are. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I just found that distinction. Subsisting being is not a creature. Like, what a cool way to just mark off even what um, an angel might be, or even what, you know, Plato's forms might be, or even yeah. uh, John Scotus Aragena's work, um, the Paraphysion. He basically uh, views um, forms as, as created whatever's. Um, isn't it's Neoplatonic? We don't have to get into that, but just the point, even if those exist, let's just say they do for the sake of argument. I'm not saying they do, but if they did, they would still owe their essay, their existence yeah. to God for their ends, their whatever they are. And man, I don't know why. I know that, I know I'm really nerding out, but it was just like it's just Thomas is so satisfying because he's so brilliant. And you, when he makes a conclusion after giving some of the toughest toughest objections to it you just realize it's really intellectually satisfying because he's right <laughs> like it's hard to yeah. like it's hard to say he's wrong on these things yeah there, it's like you have like an intuitive knowledge about something and then you read him on the issue and you're like oh like my intuitions now have been explained to me this is why i think this i never knew before now i know like i think a good example of it actually is the uh, question of with uh, God being in things, the existence of God in things in, in uh, question eight, in the fourth objection, so like right at the bottom of page 100, th this is just an example of what we're talking about. Mm. Uh, the objection to whether God is in all things, uh, one of the objections relates to demons, so not angels, but demons. Uh, he, and then it goes uh, further, the demons are beings, but God is not in demons, uh, for there is no fellowship between light and darkness. Therefore, God is not in all things, right? So the argument is, the question is, can God be in all things? The objection is, no, he can't be in all things because there's no uh, correspondence between light and darkness. Therefore, God can't be in demons. We know they have existence. So therefore, he's not in all things. And then like Thomas's reply to it is just like super helpful. So on the bottom of 102, reply to objection four, in the demons, there is in their nature, which is from God, uh, and also the deformity of sin, which is not from him. Therefore, it is not to be absolutely conceded that God is in the demons, except with the addition, inasmuch as they are beings. And uh, here it's italicized. But in things not deformed in their nature, we may we must say God ab say absolutely that God is. So mm -hmm. in, in a sense, God is even in demons only insofar as they have existence, and all being or existence owes its owes its source to God who's being itself. So you can even say in that sense, God is even in demons insofar as they have being. 
And you're like, that makes total sense to me, you right. know? And it makes you wonder like, cause like my students often, when we talk about hell in my intro theology class, um, you know, they think that hell is like this place of God's absolute absence. And I'm like, he's omnipresent. He's, he's in hell. They're like, what? And it's like, yeah, even in, and, and then I'll talk about like annihilationism where an annihilationist would say something like it's better for God to annihilate a person than to leave them in hell. And you could argue here, it's actually, it's actually kinder of God to leave them with their being in hell than to annihilate them. And uh, ask David Bentley Hart, if your argument makes sense, I'm sure yeah, he'll be, he'll he's be, not going to be happy with that. He's but, not going to be happy. Um, <clears throat> but I, so the two pieces I think that are just slightly before that the conclusions we're talking about is one, he's, he's establishing that God's infinite. Now, if God's infinite, sometimes he uses these words, we don't think about them. It means finite means you have limits, borders, boundaries. Infinite means there's no border or boundary to who, what God is. Yeah. And that means there's no, um, he, he's only a hundred feet long or 200 feet tall. It means by definition that all things, nothing can contain him as Solomon says in first Kings eight, uh, because all things are inclusive in him. He's everywhere present. His eyes rove to and fro and there's nothing that he cannot see, nothing that he cannot hear. God is, the Bible explains everywhere. It's one point. The second one is about the being of the, uh, the being of demons is that the Bible is very clear in Hebrews 1 and, and also in Colossians 1 that all things hold together in the present tense by the word of his power. And that means that God didn't just start, you know, turn, turn the clock and let it go, didn't wind up the clock and let it unwind, but rather that he began when he created and continues to sustain all things whatsoever. And that's Thomas Aquinas's point. The only reason that demons can have being just existence itself is because God not only created them and gave them essay, it's also because God maintains the entire order of created being. Like there's yeah. nothing outside of his sustaining sustenance i don't know a better word than that <laughs> there and you go <laughs> that you need to affirm those things to be orthodox to because the bible does very clearly so the problem of uh and he quotes a bible verse there alludes to i think it's second Corinthians four um god does not felt so light doesn't have fellowship with darkness yeah. and yet demons have been and that must and if god is the one that sustains the existence in being somehow he has to be in them as a creator is to its created effect. That's the analogy yeah. there. And the only the only way that you can say that's true is simply because they are alive, more or right. less. Have Not in any other way that God is somehow, you know, in them as good as goodness or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And Aquinas is pretty careful to articulate those things in order to affirm that God is not a deistic God, that he just creates and lets it go, but actually he, as the Bible says, sustains all things by the word word of his power in the present tense. And also not that he's a pantheist, meaning that the being of God is in everything. And we are sort of Manichaean in the sense that we have a spark of divinity in us, but rather to maintain the creator creature distinction and yet also affirm what is necessary because the Bible says it. Yeah. He's not allowing maybe a perfect sort of um, Neoplatonic hierarchy of being to you know, control what he's doing, right. although that would actually work here technically. But he is trying to uh, answer theology questions to show how they're coherent according to scripture and according to 
the reasonable like reception of uh, what the Bible says. Yeah. Can we jump back to just how he answers what, whether God actually is infinite? <laughs> is uh, he? he? You know, we don't know. We haven't got, we, we've assumed it, but we haven't. Uh, well, I would read the Bible, but I mean, I got Thomas now, so I don't need to. What do you, mean? you don't need it. It's not like he uses the Bible anyway. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to get a Bible verse sneaking up on you, you know? I wouldn't want to do that if, you know, even though he yeah. literally quotes it like a, yeah. all of the, almost every page here. Okay, um, so I have whether God is an all... Oh, sorry, I'm in, chat, I'm in question eight. So whether God is infinite, so how does he answer it? Well, it's interesting the way he works through it because he, he starts right off the bat by referring Aristotle, to, I got to close this book. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's, it, it's interesting because what he's doing, right, is he's he's referencing Aristotle's physics and there in physics, in the physics three, there's a discussion of like the pre-Socratic philosophers like Anaximander and, and whoever these ones that believe that the first principle is indeed infinite, but that it's a material first principle. It's not something immaterial. And so that's where the big problem is. He says it's it's an error of these philosoph these ancient philosophers uh, because they basically believe matter is the first principle. And so you saying, the Christian answer to that. Yeah. And so you can't, that, it can't be the case, right? Because it's going to get you into all the sorts job, of- Ken Ham. There you go. Yeah. Ken Ham is the one who invented- Creatio ex nihilo or creation ex nihilo. No. And so he says, uh, we must, he gives us a bit of a definition. He says, we must consider, therefore, the thing is called infinite because it is not finite, which is what the word means. Uh, He says, now matter is in a way made finite by form and the form by matter. Matter indeed is made finite by form inasmuch as matter before it receives its form is in potentiality to many forms, but on receiving a form, it is terminated by that one. That's kind of stuff you were saying a minute ago. Uh, again, form is made finite by matter inasmuch as form considered in itself is common to many, but when received in matter, the form is determined to this one particular thing. Uh, so it's like the idea of like, you've got, you've got matter, say marble, uh, and then the form, which is the, the, the idea of the statue. And then when the two of them come together, then you get the matter actually limits itself uh, into the into the form of of the of what the statue would be. Can you also define uh, it is terminated by that one? Oh, it terminated. Yeah. Like so he, terminator. Doesn't dis- he doesn't mean destroyed, like determined, but like when you when you um, you kind of almost like reach your goal. So it kind of related to final cause or an end, uh, where like it terminates at this spot. So you you're like you're driving point. to your cottage up north. When you arrive at the cottage, you've you've hit your yeah. your terminal point. Um, so it's it's terminated uh, terminated that sense. So I guess you could say it's like the trip is now over because we've reached our termination point. Um, so as you say, I yeah, know matter is perfected by the form by which it is made fin- uh, finite, therefore infinite uh, is, as attributed to matter has the nature of something imperfect. Right. So this is like related to these questions of like God being perfect. If 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 the infinite for if the first principle that's infinite is material, matter is itself an imperfection. And so, therefore, God, who is perfect, he can't be a material first principle. Uh, Then he says, um, on the other hand, form is not made perfect by matter, but rather is contracted by matter. And hence, the infinite regarded on the part of the form not determined by matter has the nature of something perfect. Now, being is the most formal of all things, as appears from what is shown above. And he makes reference to question four. And then uh, since, therefore, the divine being is not a being received in anything, uh, but he is, the language you used here, uh, is his own subsistent being, as was shown above. It is clear that God himself is infinite and perfect. 
And so he's tying the two of them together, right? So for God to actually have to be perfect, be perfect or be perfection itself um, requires him to be not material. Uh, and yet he's infinite in the sense that like a form is infinite uh, that doesn't actually terminate upon anything, right? Nothing actually like God doesn't act upon matter in such a way that it limits him in any kind of sense. And so, um, so yeah, I, I, I just, I found that very, very uh, helpful to explain, you know, that God has to be infinite, but he has to be infinite in a non-material way against these early pagan philosophers. Uh, and that that's related to his perfection. It kind of reminds me, um, uh, there's another book of Thomas called Against the Nations, the Gentiles. <laughs> And uh, what a lot of what he does like in this the heathen. Is, uh, give me, give me, give me heathen in your translation. Against I, that's the heathens. Against the heathen. And what he's doing there is he's often kind of using reason uh, to defeat reason. So these reasons against God, he's pushing back. And here he kind of does the same thing where he's, you know, more or less, he, he says, okay, these are your terms, but even on your own terms, like it's nonsense. Yeah. Of course, he already believes in authority, but just interesting. Like he's, he's really agile in terms of his ability to think, you know, like I doubt I could have just like answered that. If someone asked me the question, I'd be like, well, you see the properties of form and matter, such and such or such and such. And then his answer is well, he's, he's basically what he's doing. He's just tracing out what Aristotle has said in response to those earlier philosophers, right? Like yeah. Thales, Thales is very famous for saying that like the first principle is water and so, you know, then then doing his philosophy from that basic starting point and like Aristotle's like, no, you can't do that. It can't be anything material. It can't either be Parmenides is pure being either that's immaterial. It really is actually the relationship between form and matter that explains things. Uh, one of the objections in the second article is interesting to me. So um, God can produce an infinite effect since the extent of a power is known by its effect and God is infinite. So. That's an interesting because you, you kind of think about this um, indirectly, like sometimes, or I, used, I don't think like this anymore, but I used to think of the cross and you're like, okay, so there's an infinite debt because God is an infinite being, but then Christ takes humanity, which is finite, proved by his death, and then somehow repays an infinite death by a finite offering. Like, it doesn't yeah. make sense. Um, and then he's, I think he's kind of scratching an itch to why that maybe doesn't make sense here. Uh, maybe not in that context that's just kind of the way that i got to when i was like calvinism it's it's funny you know like um i'm reading this book i was telling you about it before we started recording uh it's called knowing the love of god by this thomas uh french thomas guy Derek lagrange and in there he was he was saying some stuff that really seemed to accord with things like penal substitution and uh and then that whole idea of like god god who has an infinite worth is infinitely offended by human sin. And I was, it was just, I remember I caught that when he said, it. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Not only is he Roman Catholic, but he's a he's like the most thoroughgoing Thomist of the last like 200 years. Mm-hmm. Really knows his stuff. And it was like, oh, that's interesting that he's made that kind of observation too. Because I, I would have assumed that maybe they would have moved away from some of those notions. But anyway. Hmm. Uh, his answer is that um, things other than God can be relatively infinite, but yeah. not absolutely infinite. For those things, the forms of which are in matter are absolutely finite and in no way infinite. If, however, any created forms are not received into matter but are su- subsisting, as some think is the case with the angels, these will be relatively infinite. Um, 
relative, I think you'll explain because they've been given an essay. Inasmuch as such kinds of forms are not terminated nor contracted by any matter. So meaning this, if there's like an idea of truth, but it hasn't actually attached in there, the idea of a statue, but it hasn't really yeah. been made. It, that idea in a sense is relatively infinite. It doesn't yeah. have a border or boundary. And um, it but, can also attach itself to matter. In yeah, any unattached. Possible. Yeah. But because a created form thus subsisting has being existence, and yet is not by its essence its own being or existence, it follows that its being existence is received and contracted to a determinate nature essence. Hence, it cannot be absolutely infinite, which I kind of found to be a, a basically brilliant argument. He says at, at base, even in this hypothetical situation, he doesn't actually grant it. If, if angels were mere were forms or forms like Plato talked about were real, even granting that was the case, they'd, their ends would still have a donation of essay. Yeah. It, it, I like the distinction between the relative and the absolute in that sense too, right? Because yeah. like you, you have to make those distinctions. Otherwise you're going to get into all kinds of problems with like who God is. You know, the idea that like uh, you can in theory or in a relative way have an infinite set of numbers, right? You could always add one more, um, but that's a kind of relative infinite. Like you're still dealing with like finite particulars that just keep extending. Like Whereas numbers. like God, yeah, it's like you just can't add one, but it's like you can't do that with God. I don't remember if I it was reading Brian Davies or or Gerard Lagrange on this stuff, but like um, when you take, one of them said, uh, if you take infinite and add one to it, what do you get? You, you, you don't add, <laughs> right, like, but it's still infinite or it's still eternal, yeah. right? But that's different than when you're taking a set of numbers and then just adding one more to it. Because now you're just getting a larger number than what you had right. before, which isn't the case with something that would be absolutely infinite. And when God has absolute infinity, infinitude, it's like, it's really hard to grasp, but God is not in any way, shape, or form circumscribed by height, depth, or width. When those are used, for example, in Ephesians 3, they're used metaphorically to describe the infinitude of God. And as Solomon says, nothing in the creative order can contain him. He's outside. He's outside the whole order of being. So like this is this is maybe just one really helpful comment to see how that works. I, whenever I talk to someone who's really into Calvinism and they say that God is like the cause of you know, sin or the cause of salvation. They have no idea what the earlier form meant by first order causality and second order causality. Yeah. Because when you say that God is the first order causality of God, that's an order of cause and effect that is beyond the ability of humans to discern. You cannot see it, feel it. You don't know how it works because it's beyond any created stuff. It's not like a billiard ball hitting another billiard ball. It's not like me dropping a pencil on the ground, like you can't figure it out. But it is true because the Bible says all things are present before God and therefore are that he, you know, he foreknows and chooses and does all this. And for that reason, he's behind all things and yet enables second order causality, that is our contingent acts, which means yep. we have genuine freedom of choice between contraries but due to our corrupt nature, we don't have genuine freedom to do acts of condign merit that God by necessity due to his justice must reward. No. So like when you know, like the actual debates from the reformation, it makes you a lot less of a dummy dummy when it comes <laughs> to free will stuff. Cause a lot of people, yes, you don't have the free will to do works of condign merit. Totally. 
but that's because our natures are corrupt. It's not because it was impossible per se. It's that you need the Holy Spirit. Anyways, and um, but you just, it's impossible now. And but you still have the the freedom to choose between contraries. Like you chose to wear a terrible hat today for who knows what reason. Toronto. This is the Canadian team, but I mean, I know oh, you're Canadian. from I know you're from Alberta, but like, isn't this like the one team that even an Albertan can get behind? That's true, actually. Yeah. Well, get behind. Yeah, that's fine. You know the Blue Jays. You're right. You're right. Right. If it's the Maple Leafs, then it would be truly terrible. You're right. <laughs> well, yeah, I, yeah, I offended you. Yeah, yeah, I can understand you not liking the Toronto Maple Leafs. The offense. Yeah, are you, the offense are you a James fan or are you an Oilers fan? Uh, I'm a. <laughs> <laughs> a flames fan yeah right. i don't know i guess i was a calgary guy like when I, you know that was kind of my place edmonton's sort of where my family is now but i don't i, I don't identify as an edmontonian I identify <laughs> or as a calgarian there you go um well I, just for the record the first time i ever heard anybody refer to the calgary shames was actually your brother-in-law who lives in calgary <laughs> yeah it's always the people who are near and dear to their team yeah. that are the most the best critics you know <laughs> They've defended to the death, but then also privately, we'll just say they're the worst. They they screwed up so bad, you know. Blah blah blah. Anyway, I I just thought that hey, was... is is God does is is he is the existence of God in all things? What do we say? How okay. do we not be pantheists? Yeah, that's a good question. So the Bible, Paul himself says, God is not far from anyone in Acts seventeen. I think verse twenty seven. Then I think in verse twenty eight he says, for in him, uh. For in him we ex- what does he say we exist and in- have our being or something to that effect? Shoot, I yeah. just can't I remember the exact me. wording. Um, he says we live, we live move and have our being. Yeah, in him we live and move and have our being. So yeah. God's not far from us because in him we live, and in him we move, and in him we have our being. So Aquinas wants to affirm that um, there somehow in god we have our our being whatever that means but then how do you do that because it's pretty clear that god is the creator and we're the creature and that we're not gods ourselves um as god is god so in what sense could uh god be present in all things and he begins to make his argument in the first article by making a statement that a thing is wherever it operates yeah. But because Isaiah 26, 12 says, say, what's his text that he appeals to? It's an interesting one. Lord, thou hast wrought all our works in us. Therefore, God is in all things. So God is in all things as an agent is present to that upon which it works. The patient, as it were. Oh, yes. We're the, patient. Right, the, the agency. Agent. Uh, we're the he's the he's the agent. We're the patient. You think of agency cause and patiency cause in a sense of first order and second order causality as well. So, so yeah, this is like, um, it's really interesting. God is very being by his own essence. So God exists by his own essence. He's the same thing. But then he says created being must be his proper effect. Yeah, the that's the work. That's the work. We It's us. So God causes this effect in all things, not only when they first begin to be, but... As long as they are preserved in being, what that's what I was saying earlier. Like the Bible's pretty yeah. clear, all things hold together by the word of his power. And I think Colossians says I can't remember the statement in Colossians, to be honest, but it's very Colossians simple. 118, the 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 constant repetition of in all in all things hold together, that language of yeah, but I can't remember there's like, like a Christ specific being language. Oh uh yeah it's, yeah. it's a beautiful text. Um oh in and in him all things hold together, verse 17. 
yeah. after talking about so he says he created everything he's before all things and in the present all things hold together so the bible's really clear that god didn't leave his creatures just to like go away it's in calvin's language as you remember because we podcasted through it <laughs> uh god's fatherly providence is overall yeah. and the universe is a theater for I, I still like uh, thinking about that series that we did with calvin um that I, honestly i feel like the providence stuff was like some of the most encouraging reading i've ever read it was just the whole thing was like to strike the note of comfort i thought Sorry. it was colonialist patriarchal nonsense there you go. <laughs> I don't actually believe that. I was just sorry. <laughs> and it, yeah, it but, enables abuse. That's what I think. That's um, it. Yeah. The I told yeah, the patriarchy, fatherhood. Yeah, I know beard. the Bible it's like says that. beard. Man, you know it's bad when his beard's He's that got his long. Beard. Oh, toxic masculinity. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, but I mean, like that, totally joking. It, but it's cool though, right? Like the on the contrary, a thing is wherever it operates. God is operating in everything because he's sustaining it in its existence and in its being. Therefore, God's in it in that he says, you know, according to its mode of being. So it's because being is innermost in each thing and most fundamentally inherent in all things, since it is formal in respect of every ground in a thing, uh, as was shown above. Hence, it must be that God is in all things and innermostly. And that's where it's like, wow, like I. You, you know, sometimes when we think of like trying to wrap your mind around a big concept in God, like how is it that he is the Trinity? You know, like you sit and you think about these big things like that almost seem like kind of out there and removed from us. How on earth can you wrap your mind around the fact that God is in 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 everything in its most innermost way that, that God like like I'm right now being sustained in in my existence by God himself? Who is in me doing it, even though there's the creator creature distinction. Like I can't wrap my mind around how close he actually is in everything. You can imagine you're like there's there's two mountains and there's a bridge over across and you're holding a rope and there's someone swinging below you and they're just living their life down there and they're yeah. denying God, rebelling against him. What have you ever done for me? And God's holding the rope because the moment he lets go, they they cast down and are destroyed. Yeah, I mean, part it's, of it's, it's, it's funny. Part sorry, of just 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 to jump in on that for uh, sorry for cutting off this very it's actually a line from Van Til, right? Like a couple of the images that Van Til would kind of regularly use. Mm-hmm. One of them was that basically like, you know, the a non-believer who hates God is effectively like the baby or the, the young child that's sitting on its dad's lap, right. smacking the dad in the face while the dad's holding it up. It's like the only way that it can smack him in the face because the dad's holding it there, right? right? It's kind of the same sense where it's like we, we owe absolutely everything, including the very core of our own being, to God's active upholding of our being. We owe him everything. And yet at the same time, we, we absolutely smite him in the face. <laughs> it's like the greatest act of ingratitude. It really is. And you help me kind of see something even more clearly, like – if God operates, the Van Til is the way to go. Well, no, sorry. Before the Van Til part, uh, uh, Van Til is always the way to go. Yeah. Van Til for life. Um, if God, if if a thing is what it operates, where it operates, and God operates everywhere, by necessity, God is everywhere. Yeah. Now, the Bible verses also prove that. But the point is that the Bible verses are the funny part with us is we all think of Bible verses as if they don't correspond to reality. But the reason Bible verses are persuasive is because they truly reflect reality. Yeah. I mean, the context for the Bible, we talk about the historical context, 
the grammatical context, whatever. The most important context is reality. The Bible genuinely describes things as they are, and they are yep. just makes sense. And God made us that way. But going, but going back to that, it's like it's so true. And then, yeah, gratitude. Like this is a point where Aquinas is very st- good on, but we all miss is if we're let's say the swing on the rope thing just for a moment. It's like at every single moment, our all that we are, and God is innermost in us, is sustained, maintained by him even if you say like god's bad or i don't like him you know even let's just say like just for the sake of argument that there was something bad about god there isn't but he's still holding you so you don't die you don't like in other words even if there were god forbid something bad about god that there isn't he still is the one main like you can think of like having like a bad parent in real life you're like well they tried hard they worked for me they put food on the table and you can appreciate that at least we don't even have that excuse uh, that, that our maybe earthly father wasn't that great. It's like God, our heavenly father is so good that despite not just denying him, but also actively rebelling against him, he's in your innermost being. And there is illuminating you by the light of reason and holding together all of the immaterial and material elements that make up what it is that you are at every second and every moment. And every day of every day. And it's like when you begin to reflect on that for a while, just as Paul, I mean, but this is Paul's argument against against for the um uh, for those on the uh in Athens. It says, in him we live and move and have our being. Yeah. Your life, your your right movement there. is is in, it's the inclusive all that you do, and the your very innermost self, your being. Yeah. God. And it's it's what I love there too on that is that Paul is speaking their language. Like these are philosophers that think about these sorts of things, right? Like Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that he's engaging with. And he's using the, what's he, where does he go? He goes right to the language of existence and being and all the things that they've been thinking about for the last couple of hundred years, which is cool. It's funny too, like this stuff I find super helpful in my kind of just like day-to-day engagement with life. Um, We talk a lot, you know, because of Charles Taylor and his whole kind of like disenchantment thesis, which is now kind of, getting some pushback. Um, but if it's the case that the that the world has been um, disenchanted because of modernity or whatever, um, this to me is a way to go right back into the in quote unquote enchantment of things where you're like, it's like, you know, I'm looking at this like cup of coffee. It's a cup of coffee that is being actively sustained in its existence by God who's in it though not at all obliterating the creator creature distinction, right? Which is this mm-hmm. profound mystery. And it just makes this coffee cup different. And like yesterday, like we're selling, uh, you know, we're, as I, I think noted a couple, couple podcasts ago, you know, my mom's in long-term care. So I'm here clearing out her house and I'm selling a lot of her like good furniture. So this guy came yesterday. Um, he was a y- younger guy, probably like in his late twenties, early thirties. He's, he was from India. He was, uh, he was a Sikh. Um, and we ended up like hanging out in my garage for like half an hour talking about religion and all this stuff. And uh, I, we got to this point where I was, I was trying to explain to him, you know, because he was just saying, like, you know, the basic of religion is that, you know, you just do good to all people and you should just, like, care about humanity. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You're right. And I'm like, the reason for that, because he, he was trying to tell me that God and nature are the same thing. And you just find nature, in, like, God is nature. Right. And it's just weird because I was, like, thinking about all this stuff. I'm like, no, nope, God's not nature. <laughs> you're, you're obviously a pantheist. And I'm, like, trying to explain to him in, like, a very kind of, like, conversational way, like, 
God is in you in the sense that your being actually is sustained by him. I'm like, you're his image. Uh, God does love you. And we should all love all humanity because Christ died for you and all this kind of stuff. But it was just like really helpful for me to like kind of frame it to him in the sense that like, and, and, and even the way I was thinking about him as he was talking and I was looking at the guy's face, I'm like, man, like he's, he's made in the image of God, but God's actually in him right now, actively sustaining him and me in being as we're having this conversation. Right. It just changes, changes the whole his life, quality. his movement and his being of the three things yeah. he says, like those, as you talk to someone and they're alive, as they're moving their hands and mouth and just the fact that they have existence yeah. because they're in God and they're, and then Paul says, uh, as even some of your poets say, we're all God's offspring. And then Paul affirms that. Yeah, we are all of God's offspring. Oh, 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 oh. So now you're a liberal, I see. Oh, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal Literally, brotherhood of man. Malachi 3 says, is not God the father of us all? So I believe it's not. Oh. Next thing you know, you're going to be quoting Fosdick or something. <laughs> I love how I was like literally recounting Bible verses, almost <laughs> quoting them. And then it sounds like a liberal. It, listen, listen, I, I'm Theo bro enough to tell you. Jesus says, turn the other. Paul is a liberal. Okay. Yeah. It's Paul's a liberal. You're Theo bro. Like, you know, this is the whole thing where this tragedy where school was shot and, and kids died and the schools then using finances to support the shooter's funeral to express the love of God. Yeah. And then you have these people on the internet who don't understand the gospel uh, criticizing them for being so Christians or non-Christians Christians, Christians, Theo bros were were criticizing the people who pay. I mean, that that, like to me, there's such a picture of the gospel right there. How on earth it's the Pharisees. Yeah, it is the Pharisees and it's Christ and the true disciples there. Wow. At this point, it's, it's too black and white. Now, I don't think that you were required to pay for that person's funeral, but it's an yeah. act of um, superannuation or something great. like that. It's called it's an act, it's an act of, of unnatural love that is supernaturally given by the spirit. Whether or not it's perfectly equitable, I don't know. Those are, and that's not my point. I'm just saying, yeah. you know what they were trying to do. And uh, it's not, it's, that's not what, you, if, if that's your logic, then you're going to be like the scribes and the Pharisees who watched Jesus to see if he would do a miracle on the Sabbath or if he would do whatever, uh, you know, son, your sins are forgiven. How did, It's a blasphemy. Well, then then he raises him up and then you get angry about that. You're yeah. going to be those guys. And uh, it's, it's a massive problem. But uh, both Paul and uh, Aquinas, I think, give us the tools to love people for what for for what god has wrought in them not for who they are here's a thought that's just like popping into my head and there might not be able we might not be able to connect these dots or or, or here but in the third article uh on page 103 uh he's he's asking the question whether god is everywhere and then he gives us like this kind of threefold way of him being everywhere uh by essence presence and power I'm just wondering, there's the the threefold live, move, and have our being. I just wondered if there's a weird correspondence between the, the, the three in Paul and the three in Aquinas, but I don't think so, as I'm saying it out loud. Like, no, live, overlap live move, have being. Nah, probably not. 
I mean, there's something to it, though, because the, the, there's two ways. One is as an efficient cause is to the uh, a created effect. And then others, uh, in another way, it's the object of an operation. So that's the movement part of it. Yeah. The living would be sort of the efficient cause. He created them. The movement as operator, there'd be that. Um, but then, but then, yeah, I think essence is kind of implied throughout there. So there is something to it. Maybe. I just saw the, the two threefold patterns there and just it jumped out at me and I thought, oh, I'd be interested to know, but I don't, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's looking at it, right? He says, God is said to be in a thing in two ways. Uh, and when one way after the manner of efficient cause, uh, thus he's in all things created by him because he is the efficient cause, the effect yeah. always reflects it. And then in another way, he is in things as the object of operation is in the operator. And uh, this is proper to the uh, operation of the operations of the soul, which is interesting. Uh, according as the thing known is in the one who knows, uh, and the thing desired in the one desiring. In this second way, God is especially in the rational creature, meaning the human, uh, which knows and loves Him actually or habitually. And because the rational rational creature possesses this prerogative by grace, as will be shown later, He is thus said to be in the saints by grace. So he's in all things, and then he's also in in humans in a particular way because of the uh, the rational nature, and then he's in Christians in another particular way by way of grace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, I think we kind of summed up these two questions pretty good. I think next time we could probably do questions nine and ten, immutability, and it's uh, it's. In, I'm I'm curious too. Like I want to dig into this question a little bit too. Of why is what's the distinction that he's going to make between infinity which he deals with in question seven and then eternity in terms of question 10 that's a neat distinction that'd be worth kind of thinking about too when we get together yeah yeah it's not a huge section so like and the unity one's tiny so maybe we could do question 11 as well that that i'm it actually might be the summary of all those Unity is also an important one to deal with, right? Because sometimes people think that divine simplicity is just in reference to like the unity of God. Yeah. Uh, and and so, uh, in fact, if I'm remembering correctly, I'd have to go check this. But is is the updated version of Grudem's uh, systematic theology? Uh, isn't that what he basically does? Because now, you know, the pushback on the earlier edition was, you don't deal with divine simplicity. So he's like, fine, I'll do it. But then he basically deals with it in terms of divine unity. I can't remember. Um, no. But there's a, there's a distinction between the two. Like you can't just take, they're not synonyms for each other. Right. Well, we see that here. So maybe we'll do questions 9, 10, 11 next time. That might, they seem to kind of fit together because he's talking about affinity and perfection on in terms of the unity of God. So Finn, 